This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie sits down with Bill Yo, family man, business owner and executive, lifelong writer, and award-winning author. In this episode, Bill plunges into a missionary trip he was called to take, where he encountered unimaginable poverty, yet discovered faith and hope at every turn. He shares this raw and captivating experience in his most recent book, Unvarnished Faith. Bill talks about the power of relationships and how love transforms the way he sees his life and the world he thought he knew so well. Poverty and and lack and want in ways that I never envisioned possible. And I talk about, you know, privilege enabled me to travel to Nicaragua, but privilege also deluded me into believing what I knew what made people rich. And so I saw this faith in action where where people who had literally nothing had had joy and happiness and, and love because they had what they wanted, because their hearts were full and they were faithful to God and and, and they were in a community with other believers. This is Living the Call. Bill Yo, welcome to the show, especially under the circumstances. I know we were just chatting in the green room before we hit record and uh, your family has been uh, hit by a recent death in the family. You mentioned your grandmother passed away and uh, you've been dealing with some of the uh, arrangements uh, behind the scenes. At 2 p.m. on the button, the funeral director called and I said, I really need to hand you off to my wife. Sorry. So yeah. anyway. 102, you said? 104. 104. Yeah. That's yeah, wild. A few months shy of her 105th. Yep. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, you know, I, th- I was talking to my wife the other day about um, just the amount of technological evolution that we've had. Uh, over the course of just such a short period of time, but when you, but we don't have the context if we get to, you know, 60, 70 years old, but a hundred years is like perfect, right? So if you go back, that would have mean, meant she was born in the late teens, early twenties, right? Yeah. During the Spanish flu, actually, she lived through two global pandemics. Yeah. So that was 17 or 18, something like that. Yeah, right? 1918, she was born. Yeah. That's wild. So that's somebody who saw, you know, tail end of WW1, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, all the desert storm yep, stuff. Great Depression. Yep. The the car becoming a mass yeah. thing. The, yeah. the internet, the telecommunications, media. I mean, it's just a, like all in one lifetime. I mean, this, yeah, it's pretty, pretty miraculous. Because yeah. you could have been born in like the 17th century and lived 104 years, and I'm sure some people did. And not that it, not that there wasn't cool stuff happening, but just the, from right. a technological standpoint, not a lot, right? Yeah. So yeah, you're right. You're right. I, I just I've always wondered what that perspective must feel like. But you know, you think like we had a reminder last night about it because we were planning her funeral, and there was this song my wife really wanted from this funeral we were at a few years ago, and I happened to have the the program from the funeral we went to, but it didn't list this extra recessional song that was played. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, Oh, well let's, let's look on YouTube and see if it's out there. Well, guess what? This funeral was in 2018 and no one was live streaming funerals in 2018. Oh, wow. Even in 2019, they weren't really live streaming funerals, you know? So even in two years, just with the pandemic, we've become so accustomed to things being out there that I, I three, three, four years ago, you would never think, what do you, why would you record the, or, or, or ever stream a funeral? My goodness. And no. that, and that uh, blade cuts both ways because the, the good about that is obviously you can get that out and people can experience it. The bad news is, is it's been one of the bigger contributors to people just not coming back to church after COVID. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. So it's yeah. like, well, I could just stream it. Yeah. Um, well, I, I went through that, I guess, at some point last year where it occurred to me, all right, Bill, wait, you're, you're going to other things. And even if you have members of your family, that are still uncomfortable. You can't do other things and not, you know, go to mass and not do all those things. And it was a, 
it was a great aha for me that now, you know, somebody kind of said, look, when your weekend rolls around, start your weekend by planning what mass you're going to yeah, and then work on everything else. So. So you'd be a good guy to, and by the way, we can, we can just keep going if you want. It's up to you. Whatever you, whatever you want. Yeah. yeah let's just keep going. Um, normally, okay. normally we pray. So I'll just do a little blessing. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, interesting on the point that you just made because, and I, you being somebody who's a convert, right. To, to the faith, I, I think it'd be interesting to kind of get your perspective on this. But one of the things that my wife is also a convert. And, right. I saw that. And she, she brought this up to me maybe a couple of years ago and I'd honestly never thought about it. And she said that she really appreciated some of the precepts of the church, meaning the the obligation to go to mass on Sundays as an example. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, mm-hmm. why? She's like, well, when you're a Protestant or when you're unchurched, it's real easy to have other things kind of get in the way, right? So you've got, right. everybody's got stuff to do on the weekends and, you know, people get married and they, there's trips and there's kids and there's all this other stuff. And she goes, but the fact that there's an obligation you can choose to look at it like, oh, it's a drag. It's a rule. I have to go. But for me, this is her talking. For me, it's actually been super helpful because I realized that I have to sort of prioritize it. And if that precept wasn't there, it'd be a lot easier for me to just go, well, this weekend I couldn't, or I'm just not feeling up to right. it, or I can stream it right. or whatever. Right. I, I don't know if, if you yeah, have had similar thoughts. Well, but. Uh, t- totally. Yeah, no, I can totally see where she's coming from. And, you know, and it's the whole dynamic of the cradle Catholics versus the convert Catholics, right? The cradles and the converts. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, I'm just so enthusiastic about all these things. And I feel like these lifelong cradle Catholics are like, all right, pal, like I remember my first beer sort of settle down a little, you know, <laughs> yeah. but then after that, they kind of, I think in some ways they're like, wait, look at how excited this dude is like to be here. Like what, what have I sort of, become complacent about, or what have yeah. I just kind of had in the fabric? And so one of the things that's been a really interesting conversation is the, the whole idea of rote prayers. Mm. And, and, you know, sort of, if you, if you figure like, you know, Catholic sort of centuries old prayer that might be called rote. And on the other extreme, then you sort of move through these versions of Protestant and then sort of the other extreme, sort of the evangelical or non-denominational, I'm just going to start talking and see what the Holy Spirit, you know, I've had conversations with people about that and, and what one person's like wrote, i.e. boring, monotonous and other persons would be. And I've had a cradle Catholic tell me this about like, well, wait a minute, if I want to pray about a certain topic or I have a certain thing on my heart or on my mind, who am I to come up with a better prayer than these, these unbelievable spiritual and religious leaders whose words over centuries have withstood the test of time. Mm. And so I got this real incredible appreciation for the depth of the tradition and the depth of the, 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 the the importance and the prominence of, of prayer life, of liturgical processes of mass. Uh, For me, you know, spending most of my life as a Protestant, you know, I I viewed the Catholic mass as kind of like a going through the motions type thing. And, And then all of a sudden, my eyes were, were, you know, my lens was changed mm. and I realized like, wait a minute, you're telling me I can go into almost any Catholic church anywhere in the world and we'll be worshiping similarly. Like that's awesome. It's wild. And, and you know, I, I used to kind of look at like somebody showing up at mass and sweatshirts or the, you know, I live in Philadelphia, like a Sixers Jersey or something. I'm thinking, oh, come on. But now I see it as like, wait a minute, but come as you are, pray as you are, you're welcome. And, that's- and it's just, it's been a really neat kind of almost, you know, really transformation for me, my faith journey. Yeah. So. You put a lot on the table there. I think with respect mm-hmm. to the rote stuff, um, especially a prayer like the, our father is an example, which I don't know if that falls into the rote category of whoever you were talking to, but my mm-hmm. guess is it probably would, 
you know, you think about that's the prayer Jesus himself gave us, right? It's like, hey, God, and literally in the answer to the question, how should we pray? Yeah, so right. there's probably some gems in there that we can pay attention to. But um, the other thing about it is that sometimes, you know, we go through periods of spiritual dryness. I know that I do. Um, yeah. And that's where I don't know if you've ever prayed the divine office, the liturgy of the hours. Have you ever prayed that? Mm-hmm. No, no. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a beautiful tradition. It's, it's when you get ordained, uh, you know, deacon, priest, bishop, you make a promise, I guess bishops don't, but they make a promise to the bishop uh, that they're going to pray the divine office, the liturgy of the hours. And it's ancient prayer that's basically, mm-hmm. the whole purpose of it is to sanctify every hour of the day. Uh, even okay. though it's not every hour, there's like particular moments. It's usually five sessions. Uh, and, you know, in, in common practice, deacons and priests will, will will pray the morning version and then the evening version. So they pray it okay. twice. But it's rooted in the Psalms. Okay, that's the whole mm. the purpose of it. And one of the, the, the real, uh, you know, benefits or privileges, frankly, that I've lived, which ties into what you just said, is that oftentimes... I don't know, I don't have the words, right? In other words, like, yes, there's those times of exuberance and I have nothing against big mental prayer and just let the spirit take over and all, that's awesome, great. But there are times when you're just like, you're just spiritually dry. And when you read the Psalms, you know, which oftentimes themselves are about spiritual dryness, it Mm -hmm. it just gives a voice that you otherwise, you know, can't come up with. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's so true. And I, you you maybe could think of, of praying the rosary, you know, praying the rosary. You might think, boy, that could be the ultimate rote or monotonous kind of thing. But but at the same time, it can be a contemplative, mystical, totally mind and heart opening exercise, mm. almost like doing a Lectio Divina, mm. where you find yourself in this rhythmic chant of of the Hail Mary in, in a way that really can be very powerful. And you kind of you come out of the back end of that that process, whether you do it in a group or do it alone, I find often a very different place than I kind of went into it. It's so. super meditative. I, I, I like mm-hmm. to remind and you know, just having fun. I don't ever be a jerk about it. But when I, my Protestant mm-hmm. buddy is about the rosary, I, I, uh, I remind them that scripture itself talks about the way that the angels uh, proclaim the glory of God. And they just, they repeat, it says in scripture, glory, 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 right? So holy, holy, right. holy. Right. Like they're, right. they're, if you're in the presence of God, I don't, I don't know. You're probably going to find yourself saying the same thing, like, thank you, thank yeah. you, thank you. Yeah. You know, there, yeah. But, but yeah, there's a beautiful kind of meditative aspect. Did you, um, did you come across before you converted, were you, uh, uh, you know, acquainted with a lot of um, kind of devotional practices on the Catholic side? Not, not as much. I mean, I, uh, you know, interestingly, I, I'm married to a Roman Catholic and her uncle was a priest in a monastery at Villanova and he married us. So I was around the faith my you know, entire adult life and, and I didn't convert until my you know, mid to late 40s. Um, but I didn't have a lot of sort of hands on exposure to a lot of the sort of Catholic rites, Catholic traditions, um, rosaries, um, you know, sort of some of the different kind of core prayers, prayer of Pope Clement, you know, those different kinds yeah. of things that people might do on, on a regular basis. And as I said, it, it really changed a lot for me from what I saw as going through the motions to what I saw was this incredible uh, spiritual framework done at scale. Yeah. So, you know, you can, you know, the, this place we spend some time during the summers is a community that has eight different churches and there are three Catholic churches and five Protestant churches that span three or four different denominations of Protestantism. And, you know, each of the Protestant churches has one service a week and, you know, between or among the three Catholic churches, there might be six or seven. Mm. And, and, 
And you could take everybody who shows up at all the Protestant churches each week combined, and they don't sort of meet the number of people who come just to one of those six or seven Catholic masses a week. And mm. so it's one of those things where, you know, there, there is, it's a part of life and it's a part of sort of habit and form. And so you are, you're worshiping in a community, you're, you're, you're experiencing the word of God, you are having a, an openness to revelation and therefore discernment on a regular basis. And as you said, sometimes you might be spirits on fire, but sometimes you might be spiritually dry. And I don't know about others, but I can't think, I, I don't know that I ever leave mass and not feel like I've taken at least one spiritual step forward. Amen. Yeah. Even, even if it's not the direction I thought I needed to go, and oftentimes it's not. Well, that's the thing is, I mean, you're surprised, right? I mean, God is a God of surprises. He's not a God of the ordinary. And so sometimes mm-hmm. you have this expectation. It happens to me all the time too. And and, and we're going to get into, uh, you know, some of the work that you do and your book and everything else. So I'm sure that this has happened to you as well, but it happens to me a lot in ministerial settings where I kind of go into these things, whether it's a, you know, sick call, somebody in the hospital, somebody who just died, Died, those kind mm-hmm. of things, or even just, you know, mentoring or giving spiritual direction. But there's oftentimes I walk into those settings and I go, okay, I know, you know, I have a sense of what's going to happen. This person is in need. I'm going to provide something to them. It's very kind of one directional, right? Mm-hmm. But how many times mm-hmm. I've walked out of those settings going like, oh, I had no clue that this is what God was going to do with that. And mass is right. very similar because, right. uh, you know, yeah. it could be about, yeah. you know, of course it could be about the homily or the sermon, but it could also be about the person you're sitting next to. And all yeah. of a sudden yeah. you, you had no idea, right? I mean, right. that's right. Yeah, it's, right. it's one of the topics I, I talk about in this book and everything is, wait, now who's ministering to whom here? You know, yeah. it's very clear that you in the role as a deacon or maybe me in the role as a, as a missionary, and I'm using air quotes, you know, th- there is a ministerial or pastoral expectation or dynamic there. But mm. but I found that I get in those kinds of moments every bit as much more and, 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 and every bit as much and more back out of it than what I feel like I'm putting into it. Mm. So. Well, you said a really important word because it ties directly into your story, this kind of missionary. And, and even if uh, you can answer the question, whether or not you consider yourself still a missionary, you definitely have a missionary spirit. A mission is very much part of what your conversion story was. Mm-hmm. Just to kind of set the table a little bit, um, you know, from what you and I discussed, right, you had you know, what, what many people, in fact, I think you even call a very kind of privileged sort of background upbringing. Yes. You were born into this, you know, uh, family that had a very established business. that's more than a century old, which by the way, you don't run across those every day. Um, Mm -hmm. this business, which you worked in, you kind of rose the ranks. I mean, you had a lot of global experience, a great education, all the trappings of, you know, business and professional life and all the things that come with that. But then you had this sort of mission experience that kind of brought mm-hmm. all these things down into into focus. And so I, I want to give folks that context of how you're coming, because of course there's sure. a conversion wrapped in that as well, right, but also right. these kind of like very different worlds, right? Which is mm-hmm. just to tell you as a side note, one of the reasons I really wanted you on the show is because I see a lot of my own story and what you've gone through, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. I don't think we hear enough from, you know, business guys, secular leaders who've had these right. moments my my guess is a lot of them experience these things, but maybe we just don't hear about them very often. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But but you have all of these things at the same time. You have this kind of faith conversion, this sort of secular to sort of religious thing. You've got a lot going on. And I just wanted to kind of paint a little bit of that picture so people have a sure. sense of the place right. that you're coming from. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, the context really matters. And, and I think you, d- you did paint it well. I mean, certainly I, I I'm very forward and vocal about the fact that I, that I did come from and do sit in a place of privilege. And I don't, 
mean that with any kind of the you know political underpinnings that that that's sort of been co-opted by as as of late. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and and that's kind of the place in life I've come from. And and but having had the chance to do some mission work and and had some chance to have some hardship in my life, actually, even before I started the mission work, my really faith journey started in earnest uh, back in the mid 2010s uh, when my mom passed away. Mm. And she had been sick for a number of years, and um, you know her, her her passing was understandably sad. Anybody who's gone through that inevitability of losing a parent would know. But it was also very beautiful when she passed. Yeah. And it was beautiful because there was this gorgeous red sunset pouring through the plate glass window next to her. There mm. was, uh, you know, we knew the moment that her suffering ended and, and we knew the moment that she went to be with the Lord. And I was so aware in that exact moment of the presence of God in the room and in me in a way that I never had been aware of before. Mm. And, and I can look back to that that moment as a real inflection point in my faith journey and in my professional life, my personal life, my, my physical well-being, a lot of different things. And, uh, you know, since then it's been a, a series of building blocks, but back to your point about context, you know, one of the things that, that I do feel committed to is trying to build these bridges, if you will, between, you know, to use people who may be privileged or people who may be more in kind of secular executive, fast moving kinds yeah. of lives with people who, who have different walks and, and, and even to the extreme of people who, you know, live in some of the most desolate places in the world, like Nicaragua, as, as an example, or, or which know, is where you went, which is where I went on, on my first trip, which, which this book, this book is about mm. um, for sure. Um, and, and how do we kind of recognize on the one hand, the incredible contrast and dichotomy between those two worlds, if we can boil it down to two, mm. but on the other hand, recognize how much unity there is and how much similarity is. And when, and when you take a faith lens towards life, you see love show up and you see relationships show up and you see dignity show up and you see our, our predisposition to, to interact with each other, not in light and not in spite of our differences, but in light of our differences, when those kind of things start showing up all of a sudden, you know, that that's when the beauty happens. The book is called unvarnished faith, learning to love with a servant's heart. And, you know, we'll include info in the show notes so people can, can check it out. I want to go back to one thing really quickly that you said, um, which you described your mom's passing as beautiful. Now, interestingly, I've done exactly the same thing in exactly the same year when my father passed away. My father um, was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, stage four lung cancer. He was diagnosed on his birthday, December 24th, oh 2014. I happened to be blessed, now I can see, be blessed to have been visiting him in Florida when he had his oncologist appointment and I went with him. I was in the room with him when wow. he heard the diagnosis. Wow. And what an extraordinary lesson it was for me to hear how he took it. He was mm -hmm. super upbeat. The doctor, the oncologist basically said, listen, if you do nothing, meaning don't do, uh, uh, you know, uh, what's it called? Chemo, Chemo radiation. radiation. Yeah. If you do nothing, you've got probably about, you know, eight to 12 weeks. Okay. Mm. If you, Oof. if you do chemo, you've got maybe a year. And my dad, his answer was, well, I, I'll, I, I like neither of those options. And, and he yeah. said it funny, you know, like he said it as a joke right. Right. and, you know, he ended up uh, actually doing this um, sort of organic uh, uh, holistic kind of naturopathic approach. And he ended up right. living almost 10 months without doing chemo 
or without wow. doing nothing, right? But yeah, yeah, I give yeah. you that background just as a way to describe. He ended up moving from Florida where they were living to California, and he lived with us the last nine months of his life. And wow. I describe, and this is going to net in a question, I promise, but I described mm-hmm. my dad's death to people when it happened as a beautiful death. And now that is part of, I've heard that before in the Catholic tradition, but I didn't know another word to describe this to them, but I can tell you that the people that I said that to, a lot of them, kind of my secular business workmates, there was a cognitive thing where they were just, they just weren't tracking what I was saying. Right. And it really struck me. I I don't know if you had a similar experience. It it, it totally, and and you can compare that to sadly more and more, you know, funerals that we all seem to be going to are these sort of, you know, secular celebrations of life Mm. and they take place at a funeral home or a country club or something like that. And and I'm often amazed by the, the, almost the intentionality, the intentional void of anything spiritual, you know, no Mm. references to, well, she's in a better place. Well, he's looking over us. Well, they're reunited, you know, those, and, and I just, I just wonder, and I, and I feel for the lack of closure and the lack of perspective on that. And, And I can compare that to more recently, and certainly since my, my, you know, not back when my mom passed, but more recently, I do feel this change in me when it comes to people passing that like, boy, you know, they're, they're this, any of this temporal stuff that seemed to be great, but they're entering their eternal glory. Yeah. And, and I can't, I literally can't begin to fathom with my, you know, human brain, what that must be like. But I, my faith is such a place where I, I do believe there's truth to the fact that it's, a beauty beyond all beauties. It's a love and relationship experience beyond all. And, you know, it's not to say we, 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 we sadly just lost my wife's grandmother uh, mm-hmm. a few months short of her 105th birthday. Yeah, you mentioned. And just an incredible, incredible woman. Amazing. And so we are right in the throes of those as, as you and I are talking. But there is an element to saying, you know what, she's reunited with her sibling. She's reunited with her her, her husband of 60 years. She, she's dancing her high heels and singing pitch perfectly right now. Mm-hmm. And, and and, and handing out ones and fives to everybody around her that she can kind of thing. And all these beautiful things that whatever the versions of those things are in the eternal glory, I, I know in my heart that, that those are to be. So It reminds me of the way that the monks think about death, right? The, in the monastic traditions, maybe not all of them, but definitely the Benedictines, um, they have, when one of the brothers die, they're sad, but they're mm-hmm. not that sad. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because yeah. at the end yeah. of the day, it's like, what are we talking about here? It's like, right. you know, what right. have we been spending our entire lives teaching, preaching, praying about? It's like this beatific vision, this opportunity to actually encounter Christ and, mm-hmm. and have a, you know, meet with him. Um, now, obviously the church doesn't immediately canonize everybody who passes. We don't, we have hope in the mercy of God that they are, you know, where they're, where they belong. But at the same time, you, you know, just being overly sort of sensational about the sort of celebration of life or conversely, just, you know, in a, in a dark place consistently, like the monks are very pragmatic about this and they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, they're, mm-hmm. we're going to miss their chicken soup and we're going to miss their friendship right. and their conversation. Right. And right. 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 of course, right. but they're also like, you know, they kind of test your metal on like what you actually yeah. believe. Right. Right. And, and by the way, guess what? We have another advocate looking out for us now. Too. Amen. Which, yeah. okay. So there's something interesting because as a convert, unless you had one of the, I, I don't know which tradition or how you felt uh, theologically mm-hmm. about the idea of the communion of the saints, but a lot of my uh, Protestant brothers and sisters 
don't um, they don't illustrate that perspective, right, uh, right. you know, very well. So they kind of the person's sort of gone. They they might be with God, but they're no longer with me. Right, right, yeah, and, and it, I mean, to me, there's a two couple of things on that. You know, one that I I, I want to make sure that people understand. You know, praying to one of these people is not praying to God. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's a, it's a different. It's it's a conversation. It's a petition. It's an intention. But it's not it's not a prayerful way that I'm reaching out to to the Lord. With that said, um, I do believe that within within the faith within my faith journey, what I consider the time space continuum doesn't exist. You know, for, for what can be my you know hour talking to you or my fifty some years I've lived or whatever it might be, that could be the snap of the fingers to, to God. And so, if I think about being being joined with fellow believers not only across geography, but across timeframes and across millennia, you know, and that's what makes the, the death and resurrection present today. Um, and, and that's what makes those who have passed before us and those that will come after us, have us all be united in one holy family. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, it's sort of a tough thing to talk about in a, in a, in a world that we have, which has physics and has parameters and has 24 hours and all the things we need to have us function as human beings. But, but there is this, this greater, uh, greater existence, I believe, in my faith that that is out there that does unite us together. So. No question. God is not bound by those same laws that he created, and he's outside mm-hmm. of them in a particular way that's mysterious to us now, but right. but definitely, definitely the case. Um, how long was it between your mom passing and your mission trip? Sure. So it was, um, I guess, about three years. So uh, between, yeah, so she passed and, and sort of the first domino was, you know, deciding to, to change my career and um, actually sort of pull back from a lot of the things you talked about earlier in our family business, still stay involved, but not as much so. And decided to research and write a book on my father, which was actually the first book that I published. And what, was that something you'd been mulling before your mom passed or did, was we it? Had been, yeah. right? We had been, because we'd been spending a lot of time with my dad driving back and forth to hospitals. And, you know, my mom was in different facilities, you know, different hospitals and, and rehabs. We'd be with him. And I, all of a sudden it occurred to me like, this guy has this incredible story. We have to capture this. Mm. And so through our business, you know, I was looking into different biographers and different ways of capturing story. And then one day I kind of woke up and thought, look, pal, you've, you've always been a big data guy and a research guy and you love to write. What a great opportunity for you if you could sort of spend this time with him. Mm. So, um, and then shortly after that, I started uh, doing some fellowship and some small group work and, you know, some Bible study and gospel reflection type things. And then the next big domino was the mission trip. And my, my brother, Jeff and his wife, Suzanne, years earlier had started a food ministry out of, out of the Carolinas and they, they pack and send a lot of their food to Nicaragua. And he had asked me to go several times. And, you know, the answer was always no. And it was kind of, these are some pretty sort of desolate, austere places. And yeah. sitting there and having all this, doing all this God talk kind of thing. It just wasn't for me. And, and you know, at the time, I really wasn't sure why on this first trip, I, I did say yes. Um, you know, in hindsight, I could say it was the Holy Spirit saying, okay, pal, it's time. You know, it's time for the next rung in the ladder or the next step in your journey. And um, you know, I went down there ostensibly as a chaperone for, for, for high school kids. And, uh, you know, I, I came away with, with a, a growth and a, really a transformation of my life that I never could have anticipated. So. Uh, how, how much of the initial no was content versus geography? So for instance, if they had said, Hey, come do this mission trip in Paris or in, I don't know, in you know, Beijing or, yeah. Would it, would it right. have changed or was it? You know, it's a, yeah. it's a good question because they also do, they do a lot of mission work and some really exciting things right in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
Right. And I've, I never accepted those invitations either. So, um, you know, but, but certainly I think the location had something to do with it. And one of the things I write about in the book was, you know, my, my, you know, again, from my background, my experience of vacationing in the Caribbean or vacationing in Latin, you know, different kinds of places was, you know, you would, you would, you would land in an airport and you drive past the kinds of places where mission work happens to get to some resort, you know, Tony resort. Right. And, and, and on these trips, you sort of avoid the Tony resorts to get to the places that you're used to driving past. Right. And, and, uh, but, but boy, what a, what a, just, like I said, what a contrast, but in that contrast is where this whole idea of unvarnished faith and, and what unites us kind of just screamed into my heart. So. so when they first invited you and you said no, and then they presumably invited you several more times, at some point you say yes. Why? Mm-hmm. Is it just because they, you just didn't want to get asked again? Like, you know, I think it, it was, it, it just felt like the right time. You know, I had, I had pulled back from some of the things I was doing in the business. Uh, the, the book on my dad had been largely written actually just somewhat by maybe coincidence, if there are such a thing, although I don't think there are, mm-hmm. um, the, the trip happened to be the week after that book was published. So, um, you know, I think I, I just realized like, okay, what, what's next for me? I didn't necessarily have the language then to say, okay, Holy spirit, what's next and, and illuminate the path. And I step, mm. but, but in, in, in more of an innate or, or unspoken way, I think I had the way of recognizing, okay, the book's done now. What? Okay. Mission trip. Well, you don't and know I who was, you chest. don't know who was praying for you too, Bill. You know what I mean? It's like right, the, right. The, the scripture talks about the persistence of prayer and gives that parable that Jesus gives about the bad judge, right? Who's like mm-hmm. this wicked guy. And the woman right. just goes to him and just drives him nuts. And he's like, if the, if the bad judge eventually will do the right thing, imagine what God will yeah. do just right. for people, right. you know, the repetitiveness of saying, Hey, you might want to go yeah. try this. And, and Oh, by the way, the, the power of prayer, I, I dedicated a whole section to the book on that. Like, oof. I'm, I'm in, <laughs> I'm in on that. Yes, for sure. So you get to, you, you say, yes, you get to Nicaragua, you land in, in Managua. Is that where you land? Yes. Land in Managua. And we spent our time in a, in a little sort of, I guess, suburb village called Pochacuape. It was kind of where our main, our main compound was. Now, had you ever had a situation even outside of any kind of missional context, just of being around, you know, sort of poor people in their own space? Not for a prolonged period of time. And I've done a, a soup kitchen or, you know, some of those kinds of things, some volunteer work through different organizations, but, but never sort of like, okay, you're here for the week and, and this is what it's going to be. What, yeah, that, what, was, what, that was probably a first. And what, what's that like? Like what's going through your mind as that's happening and you're looking at this stuff for the first time? Like what, what's, what's going on? Yeah. You know, so initially, and, and part of the irony was the, the, the compound where we stay is, is actually luxurious by Nicaraguan standards. So we had air mm. conditioning, we had, you know, we had good, good food. Um, you know, we had, had nice living conditions and, um, but spending time out in the villages, out in the communities and, and the different feeding centers and stuff, it, it was really, uh, it was quite a shock to my system. It was really a removal from my comfort zone, yeah. physically, uh, mentally, spiritually, um, you know, creature comfort, like you name it, it, it just felt different in every different way. But I would see the, the, the guides and the people, you know, for the in-country, um, in-country ministry that was, that was hosting us and see the ways that they just interacted with, with the locals and be they young or old or in between in, in ways that, 
um, you know, it was, again, it was stripped away of any of the kind of, well, you know, we're not in the same business or we may not even speak the same language. We're not the same age, the same gender. And I was like, no, you're a human being. I'm a human being. I'm going to give you dignity and I'm going to show love to you in a way that that is channeling, you know, being who Jesus would be if Jesus were me. And that was so apparent to me that you kind of couldn't help but sort of go along for the ride on that. Mm. So, you know, the first time I maybe prayed over somebody or the first time I had a conversation with somebody or, you know, first, I, I write about in the book, first time I tried to connect with a man about my age and I sort of failed miserably. Um, he had a, he had a John Deere hat on a very faded John Deere hat. He was maybe a little older than I, and I, uh, up here in Pennsylvania had a, had a, used to have a little John Deere gator with a snowplow on it. And it literally just snowed like two weeks before I went down there. So I pull out my iPhone and I show him a video of me driving the John Deere and I'm pointing to it and pointing to his hat. And he, yes. and I, I, I do speak Spanish, but it just, it didn't go anywhere. It didn't register. And it was like, and I was like, oh, well, I kind of failed in that attempt to get along. So picked myself up, tried it with someone else and, and not the same interaction, but more, we, we laughed at one of my fellow missionaries about something and, and we had a great connection on it. So yeah. it's crazy. Cause I mean, obviously you're trying to be relatable. He, he might not have even known what John Deere was just wearing a hat, right. you know? Right. Um, right. But in this, in this little video or whatever you showed him, you know, he's really, he, he gets to see a completely different world and he's not sure what right. you're... Yeah, but he might as well have been, first of all, I don't know if he's ever even seen a television, but he might as well have just been watching Mars. Exactly. Right? It's like a Martian spaceship. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like you're, right. like you're landing right. on Mars. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really wild. And then what, so like if you're, you get there and you're having these conversations for the first time is on the initial approach, is there like a fight or flight thing where you're not being yourself? Like, does that take a while to get into... Who, how long were you there? Um, the, the, this trip, there actually, I guess all the trips have been a week. So we were there, well, I was there six days. Six so, days. Cause, yeah. Cause the book has six parts and each part talks about one day of the trip. What's the difference between day one and day six in your mind but, but oh, that you experienced? I mean, just, yeah. I mean, day, day one was, you know, I mean, almost kind of like panic, you know, being yeah. in these things, how, how do I kind of, you know, how do I safeguard sort of my pride and my dignity and my, you know, competency as somebody who's used to being, you know, pretty adept in whatever different environments or, or situations I'm in. And like, really, none of that stuff did any good here. You know, this was about how do you how do you relate to somebody on the ultimate human mm. level and the ultimate sort of stripped away uh, level of of personhood mm. and interaction and relationship. And, and, it, and it took a while to come up with that. And quite honestly, as scripture talks about what really inspired me was seeing the children and, yeah. and trying to be more childlike. So we, we were there with a bunch of high schoolers who were taking a you know week out of their second semester of their junior or, you know, whatever year in high school and, and seeing the way they would dive right in with the village kids and yeah. the way the village kids would light up because they saw a big kid, you know, somebody like them, but bigger and maybe a different skin color in some cases, but, and, and watching them just, you know, next thing you know, they're, they're, they're carrying them on their, their shoulders or they're playing soccer with them or they're laughing with them or making bracelets. And, and I thought, well, look, if these, if these high schoolers can do it, like, come on, dude, like, who are you? So, you know, we tried to get into it and, and do more of those things, but it, you know, by the end of the trip, I realized like, you know what? I, I, I know some things to say. I know some prayers to get into. I know some ways to connect and if they don't work, try it again. But if I'm going into it with an open heart and a heart that's in the right place, mm. The, the connection's going to show up. Did you ever see a movie called um, the what is it called? The Exotic Marigold Hotel. Have you ever seen that movie? I've heard of it. I don't think I've ever seen it. It's yeah. actually not. It's not that it's an incredible movie. It's got an ensemble cast and that kind of thing. 
but you're reminding me of it or a scene from it. The, this, these uh, British retirees basically decide that they don't have enough money to retire in London, essentially, or they can live for a few years, but not for their entire retirement. So mm-hmm. one of their crew convinces them to move to India where you mm-hmm. can live, you know, like a king, I guess, with, with the money right. that they have. And they, I guess, take over or buy this hotel called the Marigold Hotel. And when they first arrive there, they're trying to live out their retirement. You know, so they're sitting there trying, you know, they're all the things fiddling with TVs and trying to figure out how come they don't have cable and the internet doesn't work and all these different things. Right. And then eventually a number, one of the members of this, this, uh, this group starts leaving the hotel and interacting with a lot, obviously of the poverty and difficulties that exist in India. This is, I think in Mumbai and, um, you know, she keeps coming back and kind of trying to tell them about it or whatever. And then there's like, there's a resistant few who never want to leave the hotel, right? They're like, I'm retired. I want to be retired. I don't want to mess with anything, this whole thing. The reason it reminds me of it is because there's this one scene where the woman who's been going out says to the others, it's like India is like a wave, right? You can fight it, but when you mm-hmm. fight it, 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 it just, it kind of like destroys you. The only way to really right. be right. it is to just let it take you. And then there's a scene where like they're all walking out and the little kids are walking up to them and they, they just dive into it. So it's this mm-hmm. weird dynamic where in missional situations like the one you've described, I've had some in Africa that you just pour yourself out and just let the current kind of take you. Mm-hmm. And then you find yourself a kind of being more who you are and b enjoying yourself right in, right. in that, right. in that kind of context. Yeah. And, and, and there'll be times where, maybe one of the other chaperones or one of the other kittens or one of our kids or one of our, our hosts is sort of taking the lead in some interaction. And I feel comfortable coming behind him. Then, you know, as the week went on, there might be times where I was taking more of the lead in some of those interactions mm. or, or, you know, I went back on one of my subsequent trips, you know, we, we'd been off the, the, the plane for an hour and we went to have lunch before we went out to our first mission. And, and, you know, my brother just sort of said in the restaurant, like, all right, Bill, lead us in prayer. You know, so like, okay, here I am an hour in country and, and now I'm, I'm leading our group in prayer at a, at a you know, little lunch place before yeah. we, we head out somewhere. So, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where just trying to be present to the moment. And the other thing that happened to me too on, on this first trip that I wrote about was I woke up like on day three and at the time I thought it was my subconscious. Now I go back and say, I literally woke up to the thought from the spirit saying, you're supposed to research and write a book about this trip. Mm. So I spent the last several days of the trip kind of snapping back into research mode. Like I'd done with the book on my father and, you know, doing interviews and taking a lot of pictures that I can recreate the stories from and, and starting to journal and log and recognizing it was a talents and gifts moment for me. That's awesome. Okay, if, I, if I had the talents and gifts yeah. to, to capture and, 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 portray and convey story and experience to people through the written word. And I meant to do it for this trip. And it was several years later before the book actually came out, but, but I was given the, uh, the gift of recognizing the moment, Hey, don't waste this opportunity while you're here because you can't capture this stuff once you're gone. And that's an example of what we were talking about earlier, which is I'm sure you didn't go into it thinking that, right? So, you know, God had that plan and here you right. are thinking you're going to go and do who knows what, right? Maybe. Well, and then and I'll say even, even what's cooler about it from, from the big plan is the night before, you know, we, we had, we had some shoddy Wi-Fi at this compound, but we had it. But the night before I did what I normally don't do was I checked my email on my phone before I went to bed. And one of the emails was from a former colleague of mine who had just read the first book, which was great. Cause it only come out, like I said, a week earlier. 
but he said, love the book, blah, 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 blah. But the very last thing he said is you should think about writing another book. <laughs> yeah. Confirmation. So I go to bed and I wake up six or seven hours later and I have this thought, wait, I'm supposed to write a book on this trip. So, you know, those things aren't, those things don't happen by accident. It's amazing how God communicates. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. crazy through all these d- right. different things. Those are just called confirmations. So yes. you, you leave um, Nicaragua and you come, you fly back to Philly directly? Yes. What, yeah. what is that landing like to come back oh, into Philly? Man. Yeah. Well, first of all, so I, I connected through Miami and the first person with whom I interacted was a customs agent, you know, and, and I was trying to figure out where to get because, you know, how do I do the duck? And I asked her a question. I quickly realized that my Spanish was better than her English. So I switched the question to Spanish and she directed me where to go. So that was nice. number one. Um, Actually, that was number two. Number one was sitting in the Managua airport getting ready to fly home and classic rock is blaring through the speakers. Mm. You know, the Stones, the Who, the Doobie Brothers, like all this stuff. And I thought like, okay, there's a little God wink, Mm -hmm. you know, like starting to assimilate me back. Then I get to Philadelphia International Airport and I'm walking, you know, from the terminal to my car and there's a gospel choir, full-throated, robes, sweating, belting out spirituals. Wow. And I'm thinking like, have these guys always been here or, or what? <laughs> so, so these are all these boom, boom, boom things going on. And then I get home that evening. And the first thing I do is I go to my, at the time, my, my son, who was a, you know, I guess a senior in high school, um, to one of his last basketball games. So I'm in this crowded gym with fluorescent lights and shellac floors and fancy uniforms. And, and, you know, 12 hours later, I was in a very different kind of place. It was a, it was a complete like brain scramble. So did it, did it bum you out in a way? Oh yeah. It, it, it was really a, I was kind of doing a little bit of this kind of like cower thing, like a real, a real culture shock on it. Yeah. Now it was that the huge thing was that it was for my son. Right. So of course, of course. Of but yeah, the, the culture shock of all of it. And actually the, the, one of the most amazing things is when I got off the plane in Miami the first thing I'd seen. So one of the things we, we did that I wrote about is, is on the first day of the mission, we washed the feet of the, the, the guides and the staff who were going to be taking care of us for the week, mm. you know, doing as Jesus did. And just, mm. you know, I've done that all my mission work. And for anybody, your listeners who hasn't had a chance to do that, it's, it's, Beautiful it's stuff. as powerful as anything yeah. in the faith you could possibly do. Yeah. And so, so here we are washing the feet of the people who are, you know, we're serving those who are serving us servant leadership. But I get off the plane in Miami. The first thing I do is walk past one of these, uh, airport spas where you have the patrons having their feet and pedicures done by the staff, like the exact, the exact opposite. opposite. Like, again, you know, that, 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 that's no coincidence to see those two things, you know, juxtaposed to each other. But you would have missed the juxtaposition maybe had you not had the trip. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I was super bubbed when I, when I got back from Africa, I went to Ghana. Uh, mm-hmm. This would have been 2010, I think the first time that I went. Um, and I spent maybe, I don't know, 14, 15 days like out in the bush in in, right. in Ghana. And I flew back through London mm-hmm. and, you know, landed at Heathrow and like Terminal 5 like this. It, it, it felt to me like I had entered the inside of a slot machine is what I felt. And I was right. super bummed. I was super yeah. bummed. And, you yeah. know, thank God that you had these incredible <laughs> affirmations of the gospel music and all these different things. Right. I, I had none of those. Right. And, and it was so weird for me because I had had the great privilege, which sounds like you did too, to be able to travel to a lot of places in the past, a lot of different countries. And I'd always come back from those trips going, 
man, I'm really happy. We've got so much here. We're blessed, like amazing. Right. Thank right. God I'm an American, like all that stuff, which is, which is good. I'm not saying it's bad. This was the first time, Bill, that I ever came back from a trip abroad and going, man, there's just so much stuff we lack. There's mm -hmm. so much stuff we mm -hmm. don't have because yeah. of the presence of, in this case, a lot of African Ghanaian little kids, you know, walking barefoot and dirt roads and playing soccer yeah. with them and right, right. praying with them and all this other stuff. I was like, I hadn't felt hospitality like that in years. And these people had right. nothing, right. Right. you know, right. it was just mind blowing, but I, it, it spun me out for sure. I was spun yeah, out. No, and it, it's there, there's a couple, you know, and, and certainly I didn't coin any of these, but a couple great expressions when it comes to mission work is, is, you know, one of them is, you know, that that gee, that's funny. Like what you know, uh, what a local would be saying to this Western missionary or American missionary would be, gee, that's funny. I didn't realize I was poor until you came here and told me that I was. Right. Awesome. Yeah. And so that whole expression, and then and then on the other side of that, I think he used the term earlier. <clears throat> you know, they're called material trappings for a reason. Yeah. You know, like like. The term trappings is always just kind of a descriptive term. For me. Well, well, they are traps. Yeah. Material trappings are traps and you can become trapped by your possessions. And, and in places of privilege, you can become trapped by your physical possessions and your material possessions. But obviously you can be trapped by any possessions that you have. They don't necessarily need to be physical ones. Mm. But, but those kinds of things, when you, you know, one of the things that I say is, you know, the number of zeros in my bank account don't register to somebody whose bank account is zero. Mm. Right. Mm. So, so the ability to see those things and then to come back and think, okay, how, how do I not miss the privilege mm. of what I've just learned in, in a way that I don't want to get sucked back into the routine of Starbucks, Wi-Fi, and Applebee's sweet potato fries, right. And Apple stores and all those kinds of things. So. How do your business buddies respond to this trip, when they, when you come back mm -hmm. and to the extent you share this, or maybe even your family, but I'm particularly interested in maybe people you rub elbows with in the secular space or in other circles that you're in, mm -hmm. how do they read this? Is it like a, Oh, that's nice, Bill. Good job. I wish I could do that. Is it like a little bit of that or what? You know, it's interesting Deacon Charlie, cause you know, on, on the part of it is what I hear and probably part of it is what I don't hear. Mm. Right. And, and I think part of what I hear is, is, gee, that sounds nice and good for you. And I need to do more of those kinds of things. So part of that's there. Part is probably also, you know, kind of wondering like, wow, that kid, that guy's in a really different kind of place than, than he used to be and on a different path and doing different things. And so I think it, it's, a, it's a combination of that. But what's interesting with that question is one of the things I've become really motivated on as of late is how do I live my faith life and, and continue to see through the lens of Christ as I do but do it in the vernacular, mm. do it in the secular. Cause, mm. cause you know, you and I having this conversation is a privileged space from a spiritual and religious perspective, even a Roman Catholic perspective to get, as, to get even more granular. But the vast majority of my day is in secular spaces. And, and in me fact, too. sort of foregrounding my faith would, would almost kind of be a hindrance to me trying to be the light and be the arms and legs. And so I really enjoy not just the spiritual, but the, the intellectual exercise mm. of living my faith in the vernacular and in the secular in a way where, you know, it's more about showing up with kindness and just being a good guy and making somebody feel good about them things and offering to help and, and all these kinds of things that we have scripture and verses and, and, and role models for. But, but like I said, foregrounding that part of it actually would, would diminish the ability to, to live life as Jesus did because very little of his ministry on earth 
took place in temples and houses of worship. Mm-hmm. Most of it was in communities. Most of it was seaside. Most of it was in homes and times where you're not, you know, he wasn't quoting the, 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 the Torah and the Hebrew Bible at the time. So, yeah, I mean, it, it sounds unusual, this idea of living the faith in the vernacular and the secular, but it's very akin to what that first century experience was and specifically to the way that Jesus approached things. You know, we, we have a tendency of, of thinking of ministry, of faith experiences, and kind of housing them or compartmentalizing them. And it's natural to some degree because you don't want to say there's not something special happening at Mass. There is something special, and it happens there, and it's a very different place than JCPenney or Target or whatever, you know? Right, but right. at the same time, you know, we're called to be out in this world and to remain, you know— to be in it, but not of it. Right. And mm-hmm. that requires, you know, these spaces and places that are decidedly not, you know, religious that are not, you know, uh, mm-hmm. places ripe for spiritual conversation, et cetera. And how you go about doing that is in a way a kind of an art and it's a fun kind of intellectual <clears throat> challenge in a way, right. Of how yeah. you, how you can yes. kind of do this. Right. And it's right. also filled with some pitfalls and some traps, right? Because I'm sure, right. and I don't know if you know this, but my guess would be some of the people that looked at you and said, Oh, wait a minute. Like I remember Bill cause from the country club and we did a deal together and blah, blah, blah. But now he's got this weird look on his face and he's talking about <laughs> this other stuff. I don't know if I'm down with that. And maybe you right. had some people kind of pull back a little bit. Right. 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 And, well, that's why I wonder it's, it's what's said to me and then what's not said to me. And, and, you know, I, I, I'm okay with that, you know, to, to, to be honest with you. And, and, um, but part of it is also, you know, cause wh- where you're going then would then lead towards uh, evangelization, right. And the call to evangelize and the call to discipleship. And, and where I come down on that is I come down to the concept of, of not evangelizing in the sense of a term I like to use is, you know, nobody wants to be told they've been doing life wrong. Mm. Right. And, but I come down more on the idea of how do I bear witness and how do I bear witness to what my journey has been and to what my experiences has been. And, and, you know, when when I give talks, whether they're faith-based or secular or about wealth or kids or whatever, I'm always clear to say, look, I I never want to ever come across like I'm telling somebody how to, how to be in a marriage, how to be a parent, you know, how to be any of those kinds of things. What I more want to do is share with you what my journey has been and what I've learned about other people's journeys and then let you in the name of, of autonomy and control and agency, then sort of adhere to or, or, or appropriate what of that story would work in your journey. Mm. And, and that to me is much more authentic. It's much more, I'm just going to put myself out there. And if something here, you know, something on this kind of buffet will give you nourishment, eat away. If this is not your flavor, this is not your brand, then, then, you know, let's, 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 you know, at the extreme of it, you know, let, let's remain in dialogue. You know, let's, if, if it even gets to the point of like sort of a heated debate, can we disagree without being disagreeable? You know, one of the things that I really am committed to now is, is civil discourse and just the, the obsolescent art of dialogue in our society. And that's oh, man. one of the real, that's one of the real tenets behind this concept of unvarnished faith that I coined and, and, um, you know, something that I think we're really, it, it can be a salve on what ails a lot of us in a society these days. Well, it's also happens to be the most successful apologetic approach is to live like this sort of incarnated faith, right? Where it's, you're seeing, I'm not putting on a show. This isn't a mask. I'm not wearing a costume. This is who I am. And I, be, mm-hmm. and I, and I act and live and behave and <clears throat> believe 
in a particular way. And that as an example to others is very powerful, right? So it's nice to know theological topics, which I know you do and other ones, and, and those are great and they have their moment and their time and place. But the example, I can tell you in my own right. life, especially among my secular um, contacts, that the most interesting conversations I've ever had have started something like, I don't know, Charlie, when, you know, you worked at Disney and there was just something different. I just thought it was kind of cool. And I don't know. So now I'm years later, I'm in this situation and I thought I'd call you and ask you about it. I'm like, wow, thanks be to God. We never once talked about scripture or, you know, the rubrics of the mass or, or, you know, moral theology. It was just you know, hopefully I, you know, lived a particular kind yeah, of way yeah, and people yeah. remember that and the Holy Spirit takes care of the rest. Yeah, That's the other thing. It's right. not entirely up to you. Right. No, no. And it, it, uh, it, what, what's cool to hear you say, you know, I had the, the chance during the pandemic, I actually went back to school and just completed a, a master's in ministry in theology at, at Villanova. And a lot of the ministry and pastoral and, and counseling training, which obviously you've had multifold with, with your diaconate walk, um, has to do with what I call it takes a lot of things that are intuitive and makes them intentional. Mm. So it would be intuitive to listen to somebody and meet them where they are. You know, how can you be intentional about that, about a way where you can actively listen to somebody and, and help them explore within themselves what their emotions are and, and, and what the meaning behind those things might be. And then what, what kind of causes and, and actions might come out of that. So, so bringing this intentionality to it. And, and as you said, you know, the Holy Spirit is the one you, you never would have envisioned that person X or person Y is struggling and you might be able to help them. And, and guess what? Sometimes maybe, maybe you feel like you came up short in what you were trying to do to help them. But if you think that, that it's all part of the plan and it's all part of their journey and you're doing it with, with a clean heart and a pure heart, then that's, that's the best we can ask for, I think. Mm, amen to that. Bill, before we get to our uh, final segment here, Wait What? Um, and I'll mention again, the book is called Unvarnished Faith, and I know it's available. C- can you talk a little bit about sort of what you envision coming from this, right? And who the, and who the book is for specifically? Who do sure, you have in mind? Sure. Yeah, no, it's a great, great question. And, and, um, and, and thanks for that. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the target audience, I mean, there's a couple of them, certainly people who have done mission work. Um, you know, particularly overseas mission work. I think, you know, I'm hearing really identify to it. It brings them back to the own, their, their own sights and smells and tastes and sensory experiences of the mission work they've done, regardless of where it's been. Or people who are maybe kind of wondering what, what that kind of work might look like. Mm. Um, and I think it, it's also just given my background is, is writing to, you know, people of privilege, people of means, people of sort of, you know, Western success, if you will, or, or, or certainly North American uh, you know, United States success that maybe you're wondering about, you know, is this kind of what it is or, or where do we go from here? And I really tried to write the book in a way. It's funny. My, my dad read an early uh, copy of it. He said, you know, this book is really not as much about Nicaragua as it's about you and your own journey. Mm. And I said, well, good. That's kind of what I'm hoping. I want to tell my story much like in my first book, I told his story and see where people might identify from it. And, and this idea of unvarnished faith and where that came from, is I, I witnessed, and I talk about it right in the opening vignette at the first page of the book, you know, I witnessed just poverty and, and lack and want in ways that I never envisioned possible. And I talk about, you know, privilege enabled me to travel to Nicaragua, but privilege also deluded me into believing what I knew what made people rich. Mm. And so I saw this faith in action where 
where people who had literally nothing had, had joy and happiness and, and love because they had what they wanted because their hearts were full and they were faithful to God and, and, and they were in a community with other believers. And, and so this idea of unvarnished faith came from, you know, so much of our society today is about selfies and filters and, and, and this perfected sort of identity. And it's also so much about difference. Mm-hmm. And whether you talk about, you know, our political system or our media pundits or the digital age and social media, all these things are literally geared towards and even algorithms towards exploiting the, the relatively few things that differentiate us and sort of ignoring the huge swaths of commonality we all have. Yeah. And when I, when I look at that through a faith perspective, we've let our faith become varnished as well. And, and we talk about, you know, these, again, I don't mean to belittle denominational or doctrinal differences and divides, but we tend to shine so much light on those divides, you know, within the Catholic world. Is that a Jesuit thing or an Augustinian thing or a Franciscan thing or, or you know, Catholic or, or Protestant or even Christian or Muslim or Jew, you know, you right. kind of name it. And we're, we're, we're missing within the Christian world the big picture of the Holy Trinity as the ultimate example of relationship Mm. and God is love and you should love God and love your neighbor, however hard that may be and discern your talents and gifts to help others. These to me are universal ideas. And so to stick with the analogy, if we strip away all that varnish, and again, I'm, I'm, as you said earlier, I'm down for a theological debate as much as the next person. And and my views continue to evolve on, on a lot of those kinds of things. You know, that, that really focus on love and relationship to me is, is a key of where we go on things. So, you know, that the book is really about that. And, and I use the, the experience of six days in, in Nicaragua as the vehicle yeah. to talk about that. And then each of the six days is also accompanied by a different tenet or, or set of my ethos. So there's a day on character and there's a day on dignity and some different kind of core ideals or values that for me fuel up into foregrounding love and relationships among people. I love it. Unvarnished faith learning to love with a servant's heart. Can't wait to, to read it, Bill. I haven't yet. Um, and, but I will. And, uh, I really appreciate you, uh, you coming on the show to share this. I think it's, uh, you know, gauntlet drop for a lot of folks who may be hearing this. We have a lot of professionals and people, frankly, on their faith walk, who listen to the show that may mm-hmm. or may not even be at any kind of destination. They're kind of in transition. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, I think it's, it's an opportunity to, um, experience this very kind of radical idea that you've described, um, which in a way is, may sound new to us because of the situation we find ourselves in, but is at the same time, nothing new. Right. So, but but I think the way that you've approached it and the way that you've described it um, is exactly right on for the moment that we're in today. And uh, I think it could do a lot of people, a lot of good. So uh, you know, my continued prayers for the flourishing of your work, this book, and whatever else you've got cooked up after this and wherever the Holy Spirit wants to lead you. But I look forward to uh, to tracking everything you get up to. Great. Thank you, Deacon. Appreciate that. All right, Bill. So to close this out then, are you ready to play? Wait, what? Sure. Are, let's do it. All right, let's do it. Question number one. Now, Bill, which of these Catholic and Pennsylvania, which is your home state, notable items is false. Which of these Catholic and Pennsylvania notable items is false? Is it A, the first bishop of the Catholic Church in the United States was consecrated in Pennsylvania? Is it B, the National Shrine of Our Lady of Chestakova in Doylestown is the largest Polish shrine in North America? 
Or is it C, Pennsylvania was home to the first canonized saint in the United States, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton? Which of those is false? Boy, that's a tough one. I'm pretty sure that the first one is true. Okay. I know we have a decent Polish community, so I'm going to go with C. And you would be correct. Okay. Pennsylvania it actually is the home of the first canonized saint in the U.S., but it's not St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. It's okay. St. Catherine Drexel. That's the yeah. answer. So uh, great job. Nice. Yeah, St. Uh, Catherine Drexel, the, the rich nun. That's yeah. right. There's somebody else yeah. who had some serious means uh, yes. and then changed her life uh, in a different way. Right. All right. Question number two, Bill, you're doing great. I know Nicaragua, as we've discussed, features prominently in your story. So true or false? Nicaragua is one of the few countries in the world to have a patron saint for its armed forces. Saint Toribio Gonzalez, a Mexican priest who was martyred during the Cristero War. Is that true or false? Boy, that's a tough one. I have a 50-50 chance. I'm going to go with false. Oh, so close. Uh, it actually it actually okay. is true. It was surprising right. to me. I had to like verify this in a couple different places because you don't normally have patron saints for armed uh, for the military. No. But in the case no. of Nicaragua, it is one of those few places. Right. And St. Toribio has actually got a really cool story. He was part of that whole, uh, you know, Cristero War and all the stuff that went down in uh, Mexico in the 30s, uh, okay. which is, you know, worthy of. Yeah, uh, I guess that was the head fake. If he was tethered to Mexico, yet Nicaragua was taken as their patron saint. Right, exactly. Um, all right. So final question. Question number three, Bill, you've been what our Jewish brothers and sisters oftentimes call a maher in business, a big wig, influential person, right? So this well-known Catholic business tycoon made his fortune in the quick service restaurant industry, building an empire from fast food. Later, he founded a literal city in Florida dedicated to traditional Catholic values. Do you know who he is? I'm going to guess Roy Kroc. Close. It's actually okay. it's actually Tom Monahan, the founder okay. of Domino's Pizza, and oh, all right. and also the founder of Ave Maria, which which is now its own city, basically near wow. Naples in Florida. Okay. Um, yeah, and it's got this Ave Maria University and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, very interesting story. Tom okay. Monahan. There you go. Um, okay. Well, Bill, again, privileged to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing your story. Really great conversation. Um, And you're welcome back anytime. Great. Thanks so much, Deacon. I really appreciate the time. And if you're listening to our voices, that means it's time to follow the show. Subscribe. Share this episode, particularly with that one person who may have some similarities here. You know, that very accomplished, educated, uh, you know, secular background to now living, um, you know, a deeper life of faith and meaning through their relationship with Jesus Christ. And we'll see you again next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.